0: Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada, Talking Socialism from Below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, You can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. This episode of Victor's Children is about anti-racism and socialism, and I'd like to start by thanking a listener, Fizz, for suggesting this topic. Racism is undeniably still a feature of capitalist society, even where formal legal equality and other anti-racist gains have been won. In the Canadian state, human rights laws make racial discrimination illegal, but racism persists. And it's not just about what Emma Dabiri in her very good little book, What White People Can Do Next, calls, in her words, microaggressions and interpersonal slights. A focus on which, she says, often occurs at the expense of considering whiteness as a pervasive, insidious modus operandi. We see racism in the wage gap between white and non-white workers. We see it in the overrepresentation of people who experience racism in the worst jobs and the worst housing. We see it in policing, from killings to harassment. We see it in how, in other ways, the lives of non-white people are treated as less valuable than those of white people. Racism is not the actions of bad apples with bigoted ideas, and it's also more than ideology. It's a form of oppression. It's part of how society is organized. It's a social relationship. In other words, in societies like so-called Canada, people recognized as white as a group dominate other groups whose members are treated as inherently and unchangeably different because of certain physical and/ or cultural features, supposedly. White people get certain advantages as a consequence of living in a racist society, even though most white people have very little power since most white people are part of the working class. But those advantages are real even though they're also poison bait for white workers, as we may discuss in this episode. And I'm very happy to have two guests joining me to discuss anti-racism from socialist perspectives today. So would you like to introduce yourselves?
1: Uh, I'm Teddy Zagig-Ever-Hewitt. I'm um, I'm joining this call from Winnipeg, Treaty 1. And I'm a Black, Canadian, Ethiopian, Greek um, settler living here. I'm a socialist. I'm active with Solidarity Winnipeg. Uh, I'm also a parent and uh, that sort of puts some parameters on what I'm able to do, time-wise. Um, my day job is working in multimedia production uh, with the University of Manitoba. So that's who I am, and thanks for having me here.
2: Hi, uh, nice to meet you, Teddy. Thank you, David, for inviting me. I am Charmaine Khan. I'm joining you um, in Toronto, which is uh, Treaty 13, uh, covered by the Mississaugas of New Credit and the Hona and Wendat People. Um yeah, I'm uh I identify as a socialist as well. I organize with a group called Known as Illegal Toronto. Most of my socialist activism has been around migrant justice um and trying to sort of build a more class analysis or class struggle within migrant justice. Um um movements um and also bring a class analysis to how we understand the border and uh state um and then i also added a journal called up in the ante um which is uh, more of a anarchist and socialist journal looking at revolutionary or radical organizing in north america um i also do a lot of trainings so um i think david invited me because he invited me to give a training to a climate justice group in Winnipeg a few years ago and so I'm one of those um, facilitators that does like anti-racism anti-oppression workshops but I um, have been um, centering those on understanding racism uh, through a capitalist and colonial lens um, and really trying not to really try to fight the kind of equity diversity kind of workshops that have um, become popular in the more liberal and capitalist spaces. So
0: that's me. (laughs) Thank you both for joining me on this episode and I'd like to start us off by uh, talking about the politics of representation because in so-called Canada today, liberal politics of representation I think are really influential in how people think about racism. You know, the idea that what really matters is to get people in positions of power uh, who reflect the population. So just to take an example from the present, it's really great that we have Anita Anand, who's a woman of color, as the Minister of National Defence for Canada. Uh, so, do you have any thoughts about those kinds of politics today?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is this has always been a hard issue for me because um, I don't know. Sometimes I get very annoyed by the very simple tokenistic way representation works, but then I feel I'm constantly fighting for representation in like left spaces. So, like i i my day job is i work at a union i've been involved with the labor movement for over 10 years now and it is really annoying to me how they talk about representation in a very tokenistic way rather than like building real power um with you know many marginalized members in our union or in the labor movement overall so on the one hand um i feel like Liberalism and, um, you know, conservative politics have offered this kind of like small flower to anti-racist movements being like, Hey, we'll make one of you in this position, either a CEO or a minister, but um, there'll be absolutely no structural changes. So, you know, it's, it's then you have this scenario where you have anti-racist movements celebrating sometimes um the elevation of a person of color into a position where they are killing people of color abroad <laughs> so um yeah and then you know you're kind of not supposed to complain about that because this is progress um so yeah it is it is really frustrating and it, and it, it kind of pro- provides a it's like a huge contradiction i think because um i think for socialists we're really trying to really elevate analysis about capitalism and exploitation but um, we're in a, we're in a liberal system that is telling us be happy that a few of us are making it to the top and, you know, maybe making more money and getting more power and if it's slow. We have to be patient. Um, so yeah, it's always this kind of balance of critiquing politics representation, but then also fighting for it, you know, like, um, in established labor where they handpick leaders, like the majority of CUPE is you know, are white folks, you know, and the only people of color who get elected are the sort of designated equity group or equity positions. Um, and it's bewildering when the majority of our membership are women and women of color. So um, yeah, I kinda, I have that kind of, I'll just leave it there because it is a really like tense uh, position to be in. And um, yeah, it's, it's always that kind of like I critique it, but I also fight for it. Um, I don't know, Teddy, you go. Yeah,
1: ahead. that's, that's, that's a good way to phrase it. And and that's a really good first question, because it leads to having to ask all these other questions that are all connected. Um, I like how you said that, mean, about like, it's like, you know, the liberalism handing a flower to anti-racism movements. And it's like, and and what is, what is the nature of that flower? Is it like a, a cheap, is it like a 7-Eleven flower or something, you know? Uh, is it, is it like a can you sign my name on the car too kind of flower like it's just i love that um and and i think yeah it's a huge contradiction because like like okay even if you were to sort of take representation at uh you'd be most generous with looking at it um and you think okay like which, which i'm not even condoning but i'm just just to show this idea here so you say like look this person is in this position and that's great. That's progress. Now you have a person of color, you have a black person in this particular role. And let's even move away from like, you know, the Winnipeg example of having a black police chief, you know, let's just move away from that. Let's, let's look at something that's, that's like less like uh, inherently toxic. Um, let's just even look at like, a, um, you know, uh, whether it's like a, a minister within the government. Okay. That's probably pretty toxic as well. Um, let's even look at it like an arts organization or something like that. Uh, something that we can just say, okay, that's not going to inherently be something horrible just from the get-go. The person in a pers- in a position like that are, are, are often faced with so many blocks, so many, so many uh, extra invisible labor they have to do, uh, where they're not even able to, they confront, again, they bump up against that sort of the power, of the problem, the lack of actual, um, uh, you know, the the sort of change that that representation is supposed to be indicative of and you see the limitations there in the in the best case scenarios but then all the things that i mean, which you raised which is just like yeah like the contradiction of like so you have someone within a toxic system or a toxic uh structure now you're in a position where you get to actually be in charge of the other police who are going to you know harm people who experience racism already like what's the progress there? I think the thing that is always worth mentioning, and you have also mentioned this too, Sharmin, is that, you know, from like, what is important about representation in the first place is that if if a population has diversities of all kinds of kinds, all all sorts of ways of having diversity in it, uh, and since we're focusing on racism, we're going to talk about racial diversity, if there isn't already like representation in upper power structure, upper positions that reflect that population the diversity of that population that means just like the logic of that means there's actually effort or force or some sort of thing that is that is making it not diverse it's actually preventing it from being diverse there's actually an obstacle in place that's that's messing with the natural entropy of things which are just random diversity below random diversity above it should equal that way and if it doesn't end up that way if, if there is exclusively white men or white people in general uh in positions of power and that's not what the society is then that means that there's actual active forces that are preventing uh the natural you know osmosis of of uh, you know the people in those positions to represent um people uh, more generally in society so that is a problem that's obviously a problem but it's you know as means pointing out it's a symptom it's a symptom of how the society is so you know the the cheap flower <laughs> that is uh, dealing with the symptom, and and as I pointed out, not even really dealing with it, just like papering over, just like a, a cheap way of dealing with it, uh, doesn't get to the root, um, and and doesn't doesn't get into the real problem that that causes that imbalance. But at the same time, I mean, when I think about you know. What kind of movies do I like to watch? What kind of media do I want to consume? What kind of things do I want uh, my family and my child to see? Obviously, like what I want is something that isn't like white, 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 nonstop white. I want to, I want to have the world sort of be reflected, uh, even in superficial ways to, to be able to see, to see herself for us to see ourselves because, uh, that does matter. So at the heart of it, representation matters, but Um, But, you know, if you understand why there isn't representation and what it would take to change it, you can see that just having people in these positions is not even close to enough. Then maybe uh,
0: the next thing that I'd like to bring into the conversation is multiculturalism, uh, which within so-called Canada is, you know, a pretty prominent um, thing, um, you know, shaping through state policies and practices um, the ways that racism happens, and also the way the efforts to combat it um, happen. Uh, Himani Banerjee, in her book, The Dark Side of the Nation, has said that among people who experience racism, multiculturalism as a form of bounty or state patronage is a managed version of our anti-racist politics. So could you share some, some thoughts about that?
2: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll take a stab at this one. Um... And yeah, I really appreciate. I mean, that book has been so formative to my understanding and my anti-racism. And um, I wish I wish more people, especially in the states, I wish people in the states read Honey Banerjee, because she has really um, answered some of these um, like lingering debates and questions around, yeah, representation, diversity, you know, identity politics. You know, that seems to. has kind of been taken up in the last few years with some weird leftist hot takes but um, I think um, I think the role of multiculturalism as a way to manage radical anti-racist and like socialist movements is yeah the best way to describe it um, and it's a way to manage uh, people's expectations um, especially, If you've been, you know, told your whole life that, you know, this is only what you deserve as a wage, or this is only what you can do as a job, um, but you're contributing to this kind of like overall, you know, um, framework of multiculturalism. It really keeps people in their place. But I think the most insidious part of multiculturalism is it is it is um, a huge um, uh, I don't know what word to use, but um, Uh, a way to really divide um i would say like um black and people of color and indigenous communities because i feel it sets people up um as a way to be like look you have these opportunities that are much better and greater than indigenous communities and i mean how i experienced it with my parents being immigrants was that okay we're not like them like we we moved to regina which is for me um ground zero, settler colonialism, close to Winnipeg. Um, And the whole narrative was like, we we have these opportunities given by the Canadian state, and at least we're not like the indigenous people who live in North Regina, you know? Uh, We're not like those natives who are like, you know, struggling, homeless, et cetera. And it really, really um, put a fissure in building any relationships, any solidarity um, with those communities and the surrounding nations that we settled on. And um it was like from the very beginning of settling there, like you're gonna be part of this multicultural fabric, but you know, um, who was left out from that narrative? Um, was there any relationship around settler colonialism or colonialism at all? Um, and how we were benefiting from, you know, getting cheap rent for housing and um uh, being able to settle easily um on the backs of uh of indigenous people there. And so um, it's very insidious because it's like um, a source of pride, you know, like we had mosaic where we celebrate different cultures and it's supposed to be a worthy thing to celebrate. And, you know, people say that we go to other countries and we just don't have this kind of diversity and multiculturalism. So we can be this model in the world. Um, and, you know, no one wants to be, no one wants to take those nice feelings away. Um, but for me, like, just like as I became a radical and started doing, Solidarity work with Indigenous communities. Um, at first, I was like, "Oh, well, my parents are colonized, and this colonialism here, so there should be like a direct like relationship. Like we should get along." And it's not until I realized how um, you know the state used my family and use settlement as a way to be a form of backlash um, against Indigenous solidarity um, that I realized that actually, no, these are very different relationships happening through the lens of multiculturalism so yeah that's kind of my main way that i like deconstructed it and rejected multiculturalism and yeah i totally agree that it is a way to manage um manage labor manage new um immigrants or um arrivants uh, to this country um so yeah i'll just hand it over to teddy
1: yeah that's that's really really yeah well said and interesting and I'm going to say, I agree with all that. I'm going to just say some things that are not repeating that, which are two things that this question made me think about. And I don't even know if I have it fully figured out. So maybe this is a chance for some cross discussion. But one of them is that, um, okay, wait, just, just a side note. I, I like. I just think, first of all, like the word multicultural is very interesting because, um, I mean, I'm not sure of any culture that, exists with zero uh connection or influence of other cultures like this whole idea of like humanity in these sort of anthropological silos and obviously multiculturalism means something very different in in this state Um, but just like i just think sometimes the word is a little bit interesting but um the two things i think like particularly like you know scratching from a socialist perspective that doesn't overlap with what you just said Charmaine, sure, I mean, because I all the things you said I uh, would be the first things I would say but the other thing I'm wondering is you know in a capitalist structured society, so many things that you 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 the functions of society are mediated through business businesses like if you think about um you know obviously you could think about things like public libraries and public leisure centers and schools and stuff like that which you know are from are are from the state but, but, you know, you go to a cafe or you go to a restaurant or you you're in a commute like you're 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 going to these sort of different things that you access in your life and that that make up um, big parts of, of how you access life are through businesses. So I think like when you think of when I think of multiculturalism in Winnipeg here um, and just in general, like I think a lot of it is is definitely within the umbrella of. Um, a capitalist idea of now you can have like sort of culturally identified businesses. Like now multiculturalism means that you have like a, uh, you know, like a, uh, an Ethiopian uh, auto mechanic shop and you have like a Nigerian grocery store and you have like, um, uh, and then of course, all these things can spill over into like cultural events and you can have like a a day for, for this group or that group or this continent or that continent. Um, But I just think the way that, that, that is sort of on the, on the back of, of a sort of business centric idea, there's an ethnic uh, yellow pages <laughs> and look how thick it is because we're so multicultural, you know? So I just, there's something very like um, not questioning culture and business as a sort of, you know, the, what are the agents, what are the actual um, pieces of cultural unit and and it comes down to like yes it's a business that's what freedom means like in a multiculturally successful society it means that you can set up a chinese grocery store and our society is not going to avoid it because we have space for multiculturalism that that i think there's a piece of that i i know i'm being very reductive but i just think that is sort of very at odds with the socialist idea of um how to what kind of vision of society we have what we do with Uh, blending and preserving cultures and um, and then to bring it back to settler colonialism um, again like you're seeing like this sort of like um, you know this uh, I'm noticing a lot again in the same vein like these are Indigenous-owned businesses these are um, Indigenous-owned services and and so what it means to combat cellular colonialism and to be anti-racist in that direction is to, is to again, go through this business view. And I just think it really constrains what the idea of liberation is. So there's that idea that I was like, huh, I, I never thought of it that way, but it just sort of started to become more clear. And the other one that I was just wondering was like, is it even possible to really have an internationalist view and have a multiculturalist view, multiculturalism At the same time, like, are they actually counterposed to each other? Because what does it mean to be able to, you know, succeed, uh, even in the liberal sense of a multiculturalism, um, within the bounds of a domestic state? And then how does that relate to global um, directions of movement of capital and and that seems very asymmetrical. That seems very not multicultural. <laughs> so it just seems like that you know, even if you take multiculturalism as far as it can go, um, there's a really hard wall, and that wall is you know the wall of imperialism. So I I just I wonder what we think about that, or it's just a question I had, and yeah. Uh,
2: can I just respond to that quickly? Um... Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting point is I, I would say that, yeah, multiculturalism is kind of like um, um, just counter opposed to like, you know, what I understand is like socialist ideas of internationalism. And, and I really am really glad that you yeah articulated this, the, conf- the confines of business and um, capitalism, because I guess, yeah, it's like um, uh, it, it operates in an idea of like white supremacy, you know, so um you know uh we can accept you know um white people owning like major like rogers and bell and tell and all this stuff um but we have room for like yeah a chinese restaurant vietnamese restaurant um you know uh indian clothing stores that kind of provide so multiculturalism becomes like consumerist like, fetishism, you know, for, for everyone. Um, it's, it's like a enjoyment, it's pleasure, you know, but should there be any, you know, uprisings of any kind? Um, and it's like, I feel it's the same narrative with Indigenous communities too, right? Where Um, you know a lot of settlers are like fine with like indigenous people selling their art and uh, owning you know having selling their um, you know their crafts at a store Um, but it becomes a little inconvenient when they start talking about land and land back and uh, occupying things so that you know um, uh, pipelines can't go through that's when that's when you know multiculturalism is like is a little is a little uncomfortable um so yeah I think um, it's it's um, really interesting to see it play out like in a in a very consumeristic way um and also kind of um, marketed you know it's like a huge marketing ploy. I think internationally it's used that way I think even when Canadas involved with imperialist wars it often holds up like no we're multicultural we love you know, when the Syrian war was happening, and Trudeau tweeted, um, even though his policy was counter to that tweet, that all you know refugees are welcome in Canada, which is a lie. Um, it is a huge like brand for Canada, and um, and it is really insidious. Like um, any traveling you do, people are just like, oh yeah, Canada, you are so multicultural, and um, I feel it really runs counter to. Um, yeah, it's like a really it's a really seductive. Uh, you know na- form of nationalism that people hold on to it you know, differentiates us from the United States and um, England um, and yeah I think I think it's really hard to uh, um, you know unpack that for people and uh, that's why in my workshops when I do it for I do these workshops you know for different workplaces and unions Canada is a multicultural, state is really important for people's identity it's really hard for them to let go and they just think i'm just like this you know like negative you know (laughs) negative nancy or whatever and um and they really hold on to it closely like they'll talk they can accept like police violence and you know all that stuff but when it comes to multiculturalism they're like but i don't want to live in a country that's not multicultural so yeah it's it's really really seductive and a really um, probably a really smart form of nation building. Whoever came up with that, I would say Pierre Chirot maybe. <laughs> so, so kudos to him.
1: Yeah. I want to, I want to jump in and just say, and, and what I think is also really noticeable right now is that as, as capitalism is failing to even uh, give people, it's failing even more, <laughs> more and more and, 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 accelerating in its failure to to give uh white people uh the sense that they that they have um a bright future to look forward towards and the privileges that they were able to have before and and people in general um just like the stability of life and as that is declining you you can see even the 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 inadequacy of multiculturalism to to resist like the growing fascist and hard right kind of appeals to you know the better time of before and the scapegoating of how multicultural so then you have this right-wing kind of pushback against multiculturalism which um was sort of built into the the weakness of multiculturalism in the first place because it it very much is um superficial and and uh, i just when i said before i don't know if it'll get edited out but what i said before about like the word multiculturalism and how like it's this funny idea of you know i don't know cultural siloing and like i think cultural exchange like if you if you leave what multiculturalism is and you just think of the idea of like yeah people sharing that's amazing you know it's like what what would actually be multiculturalism would is uh is incredible but multiculturalism uh tm multiculturalism a trademark or whatever is um is yeah is is totally not that and and now we see what the erosion of that um means so it's kind of like you know how <sighs> socialists shouldn't put a lot of in my opinion shouldn't put a lot of um confidence in in something so liberal and so um easy to maintain a very very unfair arrangement society um, and, and as we see right now, it's not it's not protecting us. It's not saving us. It's not it's not making the PPC lose seats. It's uh, they don't have seats, but you know lose support. It's it's just inadequate, totally inadequate. So yeah.
0: Okay, then I think we've been talking about a number of um, responses to racism which are pretty inadequate, and the philosopher uh, Amias um has argued that anti-racism, like feminism, can and often does come in a form that's congenial to capitalism and then in response to this you get some socialists who respond by dismissing anti-racism and and other challenges to particular forms of oppression and then saying what's needed is politics that will unite the working class against the so-called real problem whether that's neoliberalism or capitalism and i think we've been hearing some more of that kind of politics um, especially coming out of parts of the u.s left in recent years but more often i think certainly in so-called canada the response isn't to simply dismiss. you know the fight against racism. It's to say, well, we need socialist politics that oppose all forms of oppression. And to be clear, there's nothing to disagree with about that. Uh, but then the, it goes on to say, well, we need united working class struggle as a way to fight against that oppression. And people will argue, for example, well, if we raise the minimum wage and we have better employment standards and we have pharma care, that will especially help workers who experience racism. And that's true. It it these things, these kind of reforms would do that. Uh, and this is much better than simply dismissing anti-racism as so-called rad lib. Uh, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, and it's clear, yes, socialists do need to be trying to foster united working class struggle against oppression. So, for example, multiracial struggle against racism. But I think there's, um, it's still the case that socialists too often fail to grasp a couple of things that really matter here. One is that we need demands that do challenge specific forms of oppression, whether that be something like status for all or serious employment equity measures. And another is that autonomous organizing by oppressed people, so people who experience racism, for example, or trans people or queer people, whoever it might be, this is actually a part of how to build solidarity and how to build equality, um, which are things that we need to get to a working class struggle, which is united in a deeper way than agreeing to say, raise the minimum wage. And I'm not dissing campaigns to raise the minimum wage at all, far from it, uh, but to suggest that we need to go beyond those kinds of demands if we're going to build the kinds of struggles that we need. So... I guess to circle back to the question I want to ask, connecting to what uh talks about, what do you think um, about how social should respond to forms of anti-racism that are congenial to capitalism?
1: Okay, so um, like, I think I think I can think of like, there's two things at the same time I want to say, but the one is that um, I don't think the things like raising minimum wage and stuff are congenial to capitalism necessarily, like, I mean, Obviously it's not calling for an overthrow of capitalism, but I do think it's like in opposition to capitalism capitalist's preference, I suppose, unless it's gonna be like the preference of yeah you know, do this reform so you can maintain how things are um but I think that um just just the just the examples before about like the necessity of having more of a specific like that puts anti racist demands. More is the focus than something that is broader that also will have the consequence of pushing back against racism. I like. I think that. Yeah, how I see it is that the logic behind saying try to go for more universal demands that don't put racism front and center is to is to put your chips in the uh, we're stronger united um, approach. So let's look for a demand that's more universal and even though even, and good that it will actually push back against racism. Um, but it also is not focusing on racism. And the reason it's choosing that approach is because if you have more people, then it's going to be more powerful. And that's the way to take that route versus saying like, well, if you did go, you know, the implication or maybe the, the idea, like the, the comparison would be like saying like, let's look at something that's specifically like tackling, uh, Racism, so an anti-racist demand explicitly, um, which, by its definition of of who it's focusing on, as you know, benefiting from winning that demand, is not going to be as broad. And the the concern, I suppose, if someone was in a position to choose one over the other, would be to say that, well, this this has less of a chance of succeeding, perhaps, because it's not as broad, or something like that. I don't know. I I think like. I think that it's, sometimes these questions are a little bit more um, disconnected from like what actually what decision making is happening. Like when you're trying to formulate demands, like I think it's like easy to frame in this way when we're not thinking about like a particular union or a particular campaign or something like that. So that's the first thing I want to say. But the other thing I want to say is that like I think um, it's maybe a false. Fear to say that like you have to have a broad demand rather than a specific demand, a, a demand that appears appeals to the broad interests versus the specific interests of a small group. Um, and I think that's not really, I think we should question that because, um, and I think we should question why it's not possible in that formulation to have broad support for a demand for specific people. Like, is it the case that you can't have like a whole union membership support demands that are specifically anti-racist. Like, is that assumption really the right starting point? And if it is, I mean, like, is it po- is it not possible to shift that view? Like, I guess, kind of rambling here, but I, I just think like in these sorts of things, what what you're really doing is you're 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 building capacity. By doing, it's not like it will be wasted. If you really, if you really wage an anti-racism campaign that does have like a, a smaller group of, of a whole that is the beneficiary of that, it's not a waste to the whole. If you if you actually build up that like ability to have that solidarity and also to to win um, demands like that, it's it's actually like very strengthening in my view because. Um, first of all like it breaks the idea of atomization like if it's not in there for me then there's no value that's a good thing to break at all points because that's exactly how you'll be divided when it comes to waging campaigns against an employer against a state etc so you you build a capacity to break that divide and conquer kind of approach but also like you you break the sort of like way we've been socialized to just think of everyone as individuals and atomize. But also, like, the idea of saying, like, well, people need, like, there's, um, what am I trying to say? But also, um, the idea of taking a very principled stance, uh, and having your reason as because this is what is right. And just having like a sort of like, strong, ethical and principled stance is, is to your, is to your strength, if that actually is a motivator. Because um, I don't think that the kind of change we're going to need is going to just follow the route of the most convenient. Like I think, like it's this things are going to be uphill battles in all kinds of ways, and um, the common denominator between those things is like you're doing it because you want to win, and you're doing it because it's right. It's not just because uh, it's convenient, and uh, that's that's that. So and you don't know if you're going to win without trying. So if you, if you don't have that strong principled, like, um, force behind you, then, uh, you're going to, you're going to neglect all kinds of opportunities. You're going to write them off before you even try. So I just don't think it's like, um, I think the way that the, the, the counterposing those two approaches is framing one as a waste in some way. And I just think like, and not by you, but I just think like that kind of way of thinking about it is just framing one as a waste. And it's forgetting that that kind of work is like, well, you know, you really are trying to, what's the metaphor, like build the plane as you're falling or whatever. It's like, it's none of it is, that's not a waste if you're actually like getting stronger, but don't take these words as a, as a justification for going into pointless battles where you think you're never going to win. I'm not saying that. I just, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to end it right there because um, I'm sure Shemin has <laughs> more clear and better things to say than that. That's what I think.
2: No, that was, um, no those are really important interventions. And um, yeah, just to like, I, I agree that there is this weird backlash around, um, I'll, I'll just say like the more, Uh, identity politics realm of things and organizing um, kind of like um, we're being blamed that there's no working-class unity because we talk about racism so that's somehow people of color's fault or feminists fault you know there's no working-class unity because we keep talking about racism and that how is somehow division Um, and um, I always find that when people are like you know let's not talk about these, um, you know, specific cases as if it involves a small amount of people and talk about, um, campaigns around unity. I always find that those, you know, campaigns around general unity are still based on like a white supremacist politics. Um, you know, or, 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 um, have this kind of like, um, ignorance around the specific experiences that, uh, people of color or women or queer people might experience. You know, for example, Uh, When you say we fought for you to have the five day work week, we fought for you to have the weekend. I mean, um, it's just so ignorant to the realities of so many people working two to three, four jobs all through the weekend, all through the evenings, you know, predominantly. Um, you know, in communities of color, they're doing service work, delivery work. Um, it's so ignorant to like women and how and like in social reproduction, um, you know, and that was the same case with like when liberal feminists came out with like, oh, well, you know, women don't be homemakers. They also want to work. Well, actually, black women have been working as well as being a homemaker, you know, so um, yeah, I just feel like um, it's um it's it's really offensive to um and I've, I've been constantly told this by socialists and 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 different union activists that to bring up anti-racism and feminism divides the working class as if it's not divided already and blame these communities for that and for me i'm wondering like why doesn't it build unity to specifically lift up communities of color or women and leadership you know build building power building leadership amongst that why doesn't that as seen as unifying the working class as a whole rather than dividing, and for me it's because I feel that still on the left and even the radical left there is some fear of um, women or women of color or people of color holding leadership positions um, and taking leadership away from predominantly white people. Um, I, I just I just like I don't know if I'm you know it's not a conspiracy I just feel like there are some people on the left who just cannot um, who have fear about that and that all the issues then will be around oh those annoying people of color and they're like suffering you know and um, and yeah and it's just weird like when conservative governments are won it seems that like anti racist movements are to blame you know it's like oh well conservative governments are winning because you keep going on about defending the police and people you know that's like that's that's really dividing the working class around that um and so yeah it's really um it's you know it's offensive to me to be to be told that but i also am there to talk about strategy and tactics you know i am there to you know talk about how we can frame things um but it's um it's always this idea that um work, white working class people if they see people of color in leadership roles they'll walk away you know rather than like actually maybe they'll join you know more um or or this idea that um working class white working class people will feel threatened that you're trying to take away some of their thing you know their things their rights um rather than maybe a lot of white working class people are angry about you know this huge um you know um Uh, delineation between wages and working conditions and living conditions between their own neighbors you know um so yeah i feel like there's a lot of assumptions being made that really kind of uh, gloss over or try to hide you know some like real racism in the left you know and um some of those um assumptions come out with that um so and to go to the original question about like you know do i support things that are congenial to capitalism it really depends on for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's tactics, you know, like would I ever support, you know, um, like the position of, you know, like a police chief or a minister to, to be a person of color? Uh, no, because I don't feel like it does little to lift up uh, communities of color. Um, it doesn't build leadership amongst the working class. But I think that campaigns around, you know, raising the minimum wage, you know, um, not only will it provide you know, real material improvements to people's lives. But I feel like you can pull out experiences of, um, of who are making the minimum wage, right? Which is mostly communities of color, um, if they're making that. Sometimes they make lower if you're a migrant. And, um, and so I think it's important to lift those up. Um, but yeah, for me to, to decide what socialists should decide on should be around like, you know, what builds leadership, what builds power I definitely get behind that. Um, but um, yeah, I just, I, 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 for me, I think like we have some socialists here in Toronto who would be like, you know, why 20 bucks an hour? We should be demanding hundred bucks an hour, you know, and, um, um, and I'm, I'm just trying to just be like, okay, that's totally true, <laughs> but um, you know, or we should be building like working power through unions and not just like, you know, appeal to reforms. But, um, but the reality is that these campaigns do really build leadership in different communities that we haven't seen before, at least here in Toronto that I'm seeing, you know? So for me, it's around, um, tactics and how to build power so that we can, you know, up the ante and, um, you know, um, build more successful campaigns on top of that, um, and just bring people into the room, you know? Cause like so far, um, you know, and David, I know you've written about this so much, but like, you know, when you look at union leadership there is a problem of whiteness in 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 the entire labor movement you know and like even just recently uh, the largest one of the largest qp locals in canada qp uh 79 um two white male le- people in leadership are not getting in trouble for like you know extorting money and all this stuff and for you know for people of color who are left out of those leadership positions it's like it's like i don't know it's just like really annoying to see how these positions are just held with this like white man's club where they like just trying to benefit themselves financially when we can make our union more democratic uh more you know um uh, full of activism full of you know full of inclusion um yet we're stuck in these um you know like really like i feel old-fashioned models that don't represent the real working class so yeah that's my rant about (laughs) about
1: I want to jump in one more time and, uh, maybe not one more time, but, uh, just, yeah. Like, thanks for all that, Jermaine. And also like when you are talking a lot about the blame, like the different kinds of blames, um, for why there's a weakness, why there's an inadequacy, why there isn't enough power, uh, blames basically like scapegoating, uh, talk of, uh, oppression as the reason why there isn't class power. I mean, I'm not trying to reduce what you're saying, but there's a lot of that theme going on there. And I just, I think that that also points to a kind of um, a question about like exactly everything you said, like how What? It, how are we thinking about building power? And like, does this lead to that or does it not lead to that? And so when there's the blame, um, you know, against uh, raising up uh, the reality of oppression and the need to fight back against it, um, it's it's totally it's totally like it, it's in it's unfair but it's also like really inadequate as an ex- explanation for what what needs to be changed to get the results we want in the first place too. And I was wondering like okay, because before you mentioned like doing workshops that challenge the equity diversity inclusion approach, I was wondering like I'm curious for personal reasons as well <laughs> about that because I I'm very frustrated in my workplace about how that is, um so heavily emphasizes is uh, the way to respond to things. And um and I just feel like probably a lot of people, like I mean, obviously on the surface, like socialists could just be like, yeah, that's uh you know, it's it's a employer approach to to anti-racism and it doesn't do much. Um but I don't know, just because you like you were already mentioning that you do, you know you do workshops and stuff like that and and uh, that are that are Counterpose to that, I, if you want, I'm very curious to hear if you have anything you want to connect to that. Um, but no, no pressure. It's your call.
2: Um, yeah, is that okay, David? So want me to respond to that? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it is like an awkward position. Like for example, I got a few years ago, one of the police divisions in Toronto asked me to give them an anti-oppression workshop, and um, I had to tell them that, like, well, I mean. I charge, I'm going to like charge you like a hundred thousand dollars and at the end of the workshop, I'll be asking the police to burn their uniforms and quit their jobs. So I don't think we're a good fit. Yeah, but there is, but there is now, um, actually and a lot of activists I, I have, I've worked and organized, with are now moving into the EDI stuff. Cause it's a lot of money, um, especially. You know like a lot of companies will pay you will pay you actually a hundred thousand dollars just to have, to have a woman of color come up and and basically say don't say racist things at work um and um and they love they love that they love having a woman of color do that you know and be really nice about it um and so yeah the the the, the turn to edi which i think has really exploded actually since um the killing of um Floyd last year and or two years ago and then the rise of, of, of BLM. I think there's been a huge it's it's I mean, the reckoning around racism and race supremacy is like I'm not saying it's it's not um a bad thing, like it's needed and has strengthened anti-racist movements for sure um and we're like even just talking about uh police violence um is at a level which i don't think i had before that you know like we're talking about racism in ways that is refreshing to me as further along but it has generated a lot of you know corporations capitalists businesses to to think about racism under you know that is congenial to capitalism. You know, so they'll be thinking like, oh, we only have like a bunch of white workers. Why is that? Or we only have specific rules, and so they'll bring in these facilitators um, to give advice or to have people raise consciousness to a limit. And it's really only based on, you know, interactions. You know, and then then some hiring, you know, for sure, like having an EDI lens when you're hiring, you know, and like things to, you know, things to avoid in your job descriptions so that people of color will feel more, you know, um, um, excited about to apply, which I think also like reproduces some racism, like some advice I got was like, or that some people give is like, don't demand um, post secondary education because some people of color might feel intimidated to apply because a lot of people of color don't have post secondary education. I just feel it's a little weird. <laughs> like, I mean, I think there's different ways you could like reach to communities of color and not just assume that like they're all not going to university. Anyway, but um, I feel like it reproduces a lot of assumptions of like um, people of color are weak, we need to be coddled, we need to be carried, um, you know, gently into these workplaces because we don't, we're not used to more professional, you know, we're like, we're coming from the factories into like a corporation and we don't know, you know, like office culture. It's just like really weird bullshit, honestly. So um, yeah, and obviously the workshops I do, I, I, I centralize capitalism. And so I actually have done anti-pressure workshops for businesses and I'm like, yes, the reason that you're having these issues It's because there isn't actually any worker power in your organization to like collectively bargain um, for like anti-racist hiring or feminist hiring. So for workers here, you might want to think about that. You know, did you Um, get
0: invited back?
2: Yeah, (laughs) not often. Um, You know, and like, and um, you know, or or like, you know, the wage the wage relationship creates this. You know, if you have a business and you need to make a profit, you have a relationship of exploitation if you don't want that, if you feel bad about that, there's, you could become a co-op, co-op you could, you know, uh, talk about unionization, like, you know, um, but a lot of people just want to be told not to be racist, you know, and talk about like um, unknown biases and, and things like that, which is, I mean, obviously I don't want anyone in any workplace to experience racism and like have that chilly climate. So I'm like totally fine doing that, but I'm also just, um it's just very limiting right because okay so someone doesn't call me a packy at work I still make 10 bucks less an hour than them you know um, okay my feelings won't be hurt but I'm still I'm still unable to reproduce myself I'm still struggling to make rent I'm still in poverty and so um, yeah that's um, so mostly I, I mostly do workshops are mostly for activists but because of now the um, popularity of anti-oppression, um people ask me for some I often say often don't get invited or say no you know to those things but I have done a few and um and I sometimes get invited back there are some you know like more liberal businesses that really want to like contend with like exploitation and not be that so that's fine but it's um but yeah it is it is it's, it's, it's for me it's almost a betrayal this emergence of EDI and people and friends I know engaged in. I know it's just like for them it's if, yeah, they want to take money from white folks, you know, but um I wanna I wanna make I wanna like recruit people. I wanna recruit people into movements. If um white folks are really angry, I'm like, great, then join Surge, join you know, OCAP, join I'm from Toronto, <laughs> um, you know, um, or get involved in a union. Like I want them to be angry. Um, I don't want them to be like, Oh yeah, well I never say the N word, so I'm good, you know, and that's it. So my my goal has always been I want To bring people into the movement and radicalize them and you know or just i don't not 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 radicalize them but like um see the solution through organizing not just like policing their own behaviors so that's my long rant about that
0: well i think that uh, connects very nicely to the next issue that i was hoping to bring into the conversation which is i mean in general what white people should do to fight racism because there's been a lot more talk about this in the last number of years, probably I think more than, more than ever, so many books about it, so many educational activities, so many posts on social industry, and, and so on. And I think we probably all agree that from an anti-racist socialist perspective, there is some value in this, but there's also a lot missing. And there's, in the mix, some ideas that are very unhelpful. And I think I'd like to just bring up the question of allyship um, because of, of this. And and in in the book that I mentioned earlier, um, Emma DeBeery. Claims that, uh, in her words, allyship appeals to a desire to help a victim. But then she says, coalition is about mutuality. It reframes the task as identifying common ground while, while attending to the specificities of racism that all can strive for and that all will benefit from. Although maybe I would have added, maybe not all benefit from the kind of coalition that she's talking about. So, what do you think about allyship and about what De Beery is arguing in terms of um, coalition as an alternative? To allyship,
1: um, I'm just going to connect. Like, um, I think connected a little bit to the last um, conversation. And uh, the first thing I want to just say is that I, I just I, I appreciate that you you when you framed the question, David. You you sort of described what the idea behind it is because. I do notice that, at least in my experience of EDI workshops and stuff like that, there is a lot of emphasis on labels as if like getting the right labels and that kind of thing. And we're, labels change. And what one person means by allyship uh, and coalition isn't the same as another person. And, and sometimes even the same person will use it in different ways over time. And that's just how things go, you know, like that's not super unique to this. So, I, yeah. So I think the idea behind uh, allyship in the way you described it, which is uh, away from a charity mentality sorry, allyship in the way you described it is as a charity mentality and that being a problem and coalition being away from a charity mentality and, and you know, solidaristically uh, finding common ground and doing things together to change things as a whole. Uh, I think that's, yeah, like I can't think of a way that that would be the wrong way. I think that's correct. But I, I do think that um uh it's, yeah, like some sometimes it's a bit uh, um, <laughs> a situation of like uh, having all these intentions and nowhere to go sort of a thing, you know, like people might be ready to go. They might want to change things. They might uh, understand the distinction that's described, uh, but then um, when trying to put it into practice, when trying to think of, well, OK, what are the next steps for coalition building or what are the ways to actually uh, uh put these ideas into, into the here and now in my workplace, in my community, et cetera, uh, lots of questions arises. I think in those cases, it's very useful to have other people you can talk to about it to have organizations. You can try to wrestle these questions together. Um, so yeah, I think the label point is key. One thing I wanted to just say about the white question about what, what, what white socialists in particular, um, responsibilities when it comes to fighting racism. I I do think that, um, it's, uh, I I was thinking about this before and, um, people talk about it a lot, not a new point, but I I just, it has to be said, like, you got to figure out your own discomfort. Um, that, that really gets in the way in insidious ways. And, and, and I feel like some particular examples I want to talk about here, because like, obviously socialists are, who are listening to this are probably not, uh, they're probably on board with all of this. So, you know, if you're a white person and you're listening to this, you're probably, yeah. Like, you're like, I'm opposed po- to racism. I want to be better as a socialist in fighting racism. And I'm, you know, they might be a white person and thinking these things. So they're already coming from a good on, on side position, but I do notice that um, when I'm working with people, when I'm working with white people or involved interacting, like, I notice little things that I interpret as discomfort that make me feel a little bit like slow to proceed. Um, and a lot of it has to do with like wishy-washy language and, um, feeling co- uncomfortable being direct and, and using directly talking about racial issues, uh, even saying words like black or South Asian or indigenous or other racial categories or using a lot of euphemisms, uh, um, meandering sentences i know through this whole podcast i've been doing nothing but meandering sentences but when it's a pattern uh talking about racism and the meandering sentences show up i feel like i feel like oh um it might be tough to have a candid conversation about racism or issues like this because this person is is they've changed they've become super uncomfortable they've become super unstable they've become there's something that they're still working out on their own end and now what's my interaction in this situation am i going to Uh, have to take, manage that while I'm also trying to talk about something. Um, So then you won't even see if you're, if you're working with a person like me, you won't even see the withdrawal uh, on my part. Um, But it's a noticing of the discomfort and why it's because um, it's not really productive (laughs) to talk with people who haven't worked those things out. I, I haven't been encouraged to continue it because I don't, Uh, there's a bigger purpose than like making someone feel bad or managing their feelings. Um, So it really turns me off when white people um, interact in that way. And I personally prefer like very direct statements and I'm not talking about direct to me, just describing a scenario, you know, just saying like this happened and that was racist or something like that versus, you know, uh, euphemism upon euphemism. And especially when, So, yeah, like, I mean, what's my point here? There's the whole probably listicle upon listicle. Actually, I should give more credit than that. There's a lot of people who wrote about what white people can do about uh, anti, how to to work in anti-racist ways. But I just really want to emphasize the, like, working through one's own discomfort because um, it really is a hindrance. And unfortunately, really, really unfortunately, I know a lot of white people are, are, um, you know, Anti-racism, anti-racist uh, organizing, anti-racist uh, groups—the the the level of collective anti-racist organism organizing is 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 it's beautifully resurging in a lot of ways. But I know a lot of people just don't have a lot of experience in that, so they're starting from a really low point, and uh, and that's a bit of a challenge. That's what I'm going to say for that. My my first thing.
2: Yeah, so I'm just chew on there. Um... Uh, i just want to just respond to the last point about um the discomfort of white folks because um there's there's especially with like the emergence of edi and, like so many books about how to be an ally and the list there's a lot of confusing messages like so what is like taking direction from people of color you know and what does that mean um you know uh, listen to them um none the list i have seen has been like never disagree with a person of color, you know? And um, what I'm finding now is um, like this kind of like um, ally performative, performativity that won't engage in the fight, you know? Like the debates about tactics and struggles um, in fear of being called racist or, you know, uh, whatever, oppressive or whatever. Um, like the, this one last example, um, was around the convoy in Ottawa, there was a big meeting, and um, around like, we need to mobilize and have a counter protest. And I guess there was a few people of color said, um, who talked about like, this is unsafe for us, like we are being harassed. And so any counter protest will like, put a target on us. Really fair point. But that meant so many of the white folks in the room just kind of like, held back and like, okay, we can't have a counter protest because we don't want to be racist you know, and I'm like, this is political struggle, like let's have the fight, you know? And um, and kind of like what I tell folks also, like I'm not excluded from this. I've also been accused of um, different forms of repression um, is that we need to see, see those as invitations, you know, of like, um challenging our behavior why does it make us uncomfortable we live in a racist society of course we're going to have these dynamics in a meeting you know so when people accuse each other of racism rather than people being like oh i don't want to be that so i'm just going to acquiesce and agree have the fight you know have the fight and like i feel like um anti-racism or kind of allyship has become this like very like waspy, liberal, be nice to each other and has taken conflict totally out of our struggle, you know? And so, um, and this is new for me. I feel like we had fights in the nineties when maybe there was more mobilization around um around things like in the two thousands, but I find now that um yeah, people I consider whatever allies or comrades are really scared to have the fight, you know? And so um and the worst thing, I mean the worst if i were to have a stupid list of how to be an ally it's like be radically honest you know i don't need to be organizing with white people who are dishonest with me or have an idea they're too scared to bring to a meeting um you know if we're the mean together let's let's hash it out let's have the fight and so yeah um people again to go back to those workshops on high four love the list you know they love to like check off you know um Yes, I listen. Okay, I'll read Bell Hooks. Um, you know, I'm gonna like speak up at dinner table, my uncle says something racist, you know? And um as if as if anti racism is a checklist that we need to like tick off to, you know, um to win the struggle. And um so I stopped doing it. Like, um, or I really try and pack this idea that like, no, we don't need allies. Like an ally kind of assumes this um a broken relationship. Um, and it, it also, to me, it means this like kind of fetishization of the mo- of of anti racist movements, you know, where you're sort of disconnected from it, but you want to get in. Okay, I mean, I'm I invite every anyone who's like, um, if they didn't think about it and and now they want to act, um, is to start building those relationships, you know, and for me, it's like start going to those meetings, start connecting with those organizations, at least to start start showing up to like events and and um. And protests and building those relationships. And for me, an ally is um kind of like the simple way out if you don't want to do any organizing, if you don't want to build any relationships. So you can still continue living your, you know, um bubble of um, you know, disconnected from different movements and um and so individual as well. You know, there's no like collective organizing and how to be an ally. There's no like Build, have a reading group with militants, and you know, re, you know, at least read like the basics. Like, that's always about um, watching your behavior and um, and doing the small things. Um, and what's interesting about the ally I talk to is they talk about it as in as correcting imbalances. You know, like we have this like perfectly functioning system, but there's just a few quirks that if you could just manage your behavior correctly, will balance things out. And um, yeah, being an ally is gonna do nothing for the injustice and the oppression that happens. So yeah, I I do really reject those politics uh, about being an ally, but I understand it. And I really would try to like connect more to building relationships and struggle that, you know, um, are happening. Um, But but yeah, it has really kind of um, given this like narrative that, um, yeah, just about like, um, be nice, you know <laughs> like just like this kind of like very like non conflict thing, and um yeah for certain circles that might like for liberals that might be good, but I think for socialists, like we need to have more fights, you know, and like we need to define okay for anti racism what does that mean in our everyday organizing and have those fights i'm not saying that like like for sure, I've called out my people when i 'm like I feel like you're not listening to me, and I feel like you know some of your um the culture of whiteness is like really coming out um they can disagree with me and like you know i can take it i mean i'm just like kind of tired of um these narratives being like people of color um, black folks and just folks are just like so traumatized by white supremacy which we are but that we just can't take you know any argument any disagreement or that we'll just like walk away um yeah so i feel there's still like a huge and for me that's again around the lack of relationship and a lack of trust So I would, I would forefront those as like things that if you want to be an ally to do rather than just like, you know, fight with your uncle at Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, another piece of this, the puzzle, as I see it, is that there's sometimes, or I guess often this assumption that essentially that there's nothing that uh, white workers have to fight for in this. Um, And so the connection between, you know, common class interests and anti-racism is just out of the frame. Um, And sometimes even I've seen people who are are pretty radical in terms of really seriously committed about their anti-racism end up kind of approaching it that way, which is a very strange way to try to engage white working class people in taking up this issue.
2: If I could just, one small point about that, David, is um, it is, yeah, it is a very strange way, but uh, I always always think that like, if for um, any campaign that if you don't see white people, um any gains for like indigenous people black people people of color will benefit white working class people as well like it's you know just because it's you don't know, see yourself in those campaigns um any win for any worker will be good for all working class people and so um yeah it's a very unusual analysis to, to think about division that way but anyway i just wanted to throw that out
0: teddy did you have anything you wanted to th- add to this? Yeah,
1: I, I just, um, <clears throat> I would recommend people read the short article in the first Spectre journal, Marxism and White Privilege, uh, colon, building on Du Bois by Vanessa Wills, because I can't find it, I'm trying to find, but there's there's just a great analogy about just, I mean, it's just, it's necessary to a socialist to think through the, the question of like how to build solidarity in spite of and in opposition to the differential privileges that people have, um, while simultaneously wanting to build a different system. And that's a real question. And the, you're worse off in all the efforts that that you have uh, by not confronting that question, not thinking it through, and you're better off for having good answers to it and good practices. There's a really great analogy, but I don't, I can't find it. I'm just, I'm not going to, not going to butcher it, but um it's it's not a long article it's very good and it's uh it's available online and it's yeah check it out vanessa wills spectre journal first i will i will
0: include the link in the show notes
1: perfect perfect
0: yeah okay so in recovering anti-racism reflections on collectivity and solidarity and anti-racist organizing as far shafi and ilyas nagdi point out in their words In popular or mainstream discourse, solidarity is increasingly being replaced by the framework of allyship, or as a transactional rather than a transformative relationship. Allyship reduces solidarity to a fragile politics of temporary togetherness between groups or struggles that will remain otherwise separate. It is predicated on a vertical relationship between partners, rather than the more generative horizontal process of building solidarity across difference. Meanwhile, the moves towards a transactional logic of solidarity transforms it into a mechanical almost market style exchange i think this is really interesting and i'd like to know what you think do you want to go for a study or
1: sure um yeah i also think it's really interesting and i think like always there's the caveat of like labels and you know what one person might mean by allyship might not be exactly what is meant there but i do think what is being described there is a is a real phenomenon that is really described in a in an accurate way and it's worth thinking about and I guess, like, it just reminds me of an experience I had when um, I won't get into the details of what the actual sort of activism organi- organizing was, but, but the composition of who was involved with it was uh, different people of different sort of broad racialized and class identities. Maybe not so much class identities, but racialized identities. There's a combination of Indigenous people, people who were white, um, people who were, I don't remember if there are other Black people besides me. There were other people of color people who experienced racism and it was it was sort of like a there was there was a sort of organizing around uh, a kind of land defense against this sort of really egregious real estate developer in Winnipeg and what ended up happening over a lengthy amount of um, time trying to trying to push back against a certain development in a certain place being vague here but um was there was a lawsuit that happened and then the lawsuit was this huge stressful um you know more than 40 people named on a lawsuit and and now all the people who were involved with this direct action organizing against this this real estate land development were were put in a position where they had to decide how they were going to respond to this legal situation and it was at this point that the some of the ideas coming through in the quotation you read, David, um, really the different ideas of, of how to how to work together across these lines of difference um, really came to play. So one idea that was really that unfortunately kind of became the dominant idea within that within that group um, was that um, anybody who's white should uh, sort of foot the legal bill and be the front line of getting the brunt of any kind of potential problem that comes out of this sort of uh state uh clampdown in this legal battle in the aftermath of this of this direct action and there wasn't really much discussion around like well what does it mean to be oppositional against the state um is it as simple as a calculation of saying um uh, one person has a particular social location, and therefore that's the whole way of describing uh, how to navigate this sort of complex and very you know rigged against us situation. Um, and yeah that that just seemed very reductive, very sort of it's true that there are differences between people in in different groups, of course. People experience oppressions in different ways. Some people don't experience particular kinds of oppression. The danger is in, in sort of being very unsophisticated in, in, the compl- in, in recognizing the complexity of, of where people are and undermining or erasing the possibility for a unity that's deeper than a sort of superficial, you're this, and therefore this is your place, and therefore the potential for working together only looks like this. Um, So that was just a personal experience. I hope the vagueness doesn't make it impossible to decipher the point I'm trying to make here. Um, And I just feel like it's always important when talking about things like this to, to not overcorrect and not sort of minimize the real differences people actually have and different people are exposed to different risk and experience different kinds of unfair situations that are based on, on broad, you know, oppressions and that I think it's a mistake for, maybe white listeners to think, see, we're all united and, and, you know, whiteness doesn't really matter in these kinds of considerations. But I, I do think like, you know, who you're up against and and what that means for what kind of ways people can work together are, are questions that aren't really easily answered simply by saying, oh, white people must do this in this scenario every single time. There's no sort of more complex ways to think about it. So that's what I'll say first comes to mind there. And yeah. Charmaine?
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Teddy. You give me a lot to think about because um, when I first started doing anti-oppression workshops, a big component of a of the request, and I still get these requests about um, how to be an ally. And um, at first, it seemed like you know when I you know gave the list, and they're hard. You can when you Google how to be an ally, there y'all, you, you get a list. You get a list of like you know, don't say racist things. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, actually. Um, don't say anything racist. Uh, give your money to whoever you're supporting, listen, you know, all this kind of weird stuff that just seems kind of like more like intuitive if you're part of organizing. As I've, I've actually like um, cut all that from my workshops now and talked about like what solidarity could look like, what relationship building could look like. And, you know, i like kind of like real, um, real issues. That I think activists face, right. Like, you know, um, working anti-poverty groups that are really dominated by white people, even though, you know, um, statistically poverty impacts people of color at greater levels and with more disparity in my union movement, in my own union, you know, lack of involvement of people of color or indigenous people or women, you know, like my local or my union QP is predominantly made up of women of color, yet the leadership is always white. And so I think like, I think people really need to contend with this. And I don't think that's about being a good ally because when people say, oh, we're allies, it kind of takes the power that, the power relationship out of um, of what's happening. And, um, and also I feel like when people take up that mantle of an ally, they're almost kind of taking over some movements. And the word ally really reminds me of, um, you know, that letter that Martin Luther King wrote in Birmingham to like the white moderate. I don't have it memorized or anything, but he's talking about all these like white moderates who claim to be allies, but are like, we're there, we're with you to a certain level. But when you start like, shutting down streets and, like, being too rowdy, that's when we we can't support your movement. We only like it when you're nice. And I find that encompasses a lot of that definition or relationship of allyship, where it's, like, support to a certain level. That happens with Palestine. That happens with Indigenous solidarity. That happens with the BLM movement, right, where allies are on side to a certain level, and then when it gets too radical or demands become too, you know, uh, extreme, uh, that's when they kind of, you know, pull away and they kind of want this like polite, politeness, I guess. Um, so I, I really, I, and I find that a lot in like um, maneuvers being made by like major unions, major NGOs, um, you know, especially when they wanted to be on side of the more radical uprisings uh, that are happening in the grassroots. They're like, we want to support, but to a certain level. And so, yeah, I've been very, um, not dismissive, but really trying to turn allyship kind of like inside out or upside down. Um, to um to really ask people like what would a relationship or a commitment to a movement look like if it meant that you were losing some of your own power and it was making you kind of uncomfortable you know like what would that look like um i think that's really hard for people to answer because you know people i mean we live in a world of scarcity and people want to hold on to what they want to hold on to but i think that's i think that's a really important question about um, how much would you risk for a movement, you know? Because I think people, when they're showing up and you have differences, that has to be a conversation about, you know, if you're doing a demo, if you're, you know, doing any kind of campaign, who's doing the riskier stuff? And for me, if you're going to meet ally, quote unquote, or in solidarity, it would be people with, like, you know, um, a lot more to lose to be on the front lines, right? Like, not, not to say that's universally, right? But, like, we want to to protect people who are undocumented, we want to protect protect people who are black or people of color indigenous from police violence. I'm not to say, I'm not gonna make the assumption that if you're, you know, led by white people, the cops won't go in, you know, with batons or anything. But if it if it creates a scenario where they might pause, then you know, maybe that'd be an interesting tactic to experiment with, you know. One thing also this quote reminds me of and what you're talking about, Teddy, is um the kind of um, I don't know, resurgence or popularity with surge, which is standing up for uh, racial justice, I think. And they're quite a huge group in Toronto. And it's interesting, like, I gone to a few of their meetings to talk about campaigns for them to support. But their main mandate is to, like, you know, really um, fight white supremacy and talk to white people and provide workshops about white supremacy. But what they're mostly known for practically is, if you need money, <laughs> you ask Surge because they do these, like, amazing fundraising jobs, like, at their meetings and before rallies and things like that where they fundraise like tens of thousands of dollars with this idea of being like white people have more money. Um or maybe they're just good fundraisers. I don't know. But I just felt really uncomfortable by by that assumption. Like especially if we wanting to engage like working class poor people and the assumption is like they have to give money um and it becomes transactional. Um then yeah I I I think that's a really sad relationship to have, you know, like yeah. So I guess I would like, it just really depends. Like I use ally in like certain ways, like when I don't expect more from people I'm talking to like major union heads and I'm like, yeah, you're an ally, like give us 10,000 or something. <laughs> I might do that. But um, but I, I, I do agree that it is predicated in something that's transactional, something that's superficial, that's for sure. And for me, at the end of the day, how I've seen real struggle being forged and real solidarity being forged is when, yeah, when people struggle together, when you're in the streets together, when you're organizing together. And I do think if there's a lot of difference then you need to have an uncomfortable conversation. Like for example, and, you know, um, people who might own houses in Toronto and those who don't, those who are like precariously housed all the time. I, I think that needs to, you know, be discussed about how we take care of each other in our own organizing. Um, but I would never mean to extend that, that all white people are rich or something, or all white people have more to give. Um, yeah, so I'm definitely like, I definitely um, like to talk about power a lot in our organizing, but I think we should all aim for equality, equality of treatment, equality of you know, raising power amongst everyone, things like that. Um, and that, that kind of gets torn apart, especially when like, the more crude identity politics comes out with who can speak on what, you know? Um, and for me, I actually don't have much criteria about that anymore. I used to, um, but I feel that if people can kind of show their commitment on the streets and everyday, you know, in their everyday politics, then, yeah, I actually don't mind this, you know? There's a white guy who's going to be talking about anti-racism and white supremacy, you know? Um, in fact, I, I have, I have built, built leadership with white people to do that, you know? Um, so... Yeah, I'm kind of that's where I kind of am with the allyship thing and and um I, I actually don't know if it's been used that much anymore. I think it is more taken up by liberals now. Um, but I have started showing that letter um in my workshops, the one that um Martin Luther King wrote about like the white moderate and how that's a dangerous place for liberals to be in, and how 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 the white moderate actually can uh prevent so much social like so much movement by social movements more than conservatives, more than racists. So Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think regardless of the language used, I think that what Shafi and and Nagdi are talking about when they talk about, you know, the, the more difficult or generative process of building solidarity across difference. I think that there's a lot of skepticism, you know, even on the radical left about the possibility of doing that when that's a difference that's based on oppression, right? And I think that which has got a lot to do with the low level of social struggle, which means people haven't had the experiences, for example, of being able to build solidarity across the lines that racism creates within the working class at a a level that isn't just a very low level of, you know, of unity. So I I do think there's a real dilemma around these
1: these politics. Yeah, I want to also say, and I mean, this might be really basic, like, but uh, maybe it'll help me, whatever, get to something a little more better. And that's just, Let me try to sketch out this thought process here. Like there is, there's ways in which a transactional approach to life is becoming more sort of life is just mapped onto this sort of transactional scheme in all kinds of ways um, beyond the topic of anti-racism and how socialists should navigate to that. But just in general, you know, even in friendships, et cetera like just transactions, market, this kind of a thing is sort of, you know, what we're socialized in, what we see everywhere. Um, and one thing that, one function of the sort of transactional approach that I'm not even describing in a negative way, I'm just saying, it's it does some sort of connection between like the individual and the aggregate or the collective, like you have a transaction and you are you know, there's something going on with you as an individual. So one's individual agency is part of that equation. And and so, so the explanation goes, all these individuals sort of acting in their way and having their transaction is sort of somehow there's some leap to being a collective or something. That's going on in the transactional kind of framework. And allyship, again, it when you think about it in a transactional way, even if you don't use that word, allyship, if you just think about one's particular you know, identity as an as an entity as different from another, and that sort of being across different lines of oppression and some sort of cross talk or cross connection happening, it does fold in where one exists on an individual level, and it's on an individual level where there's you know inner things such as courage and sacrifice and stuff. There's there's these sort of things that are still important in you know, when you're talking about Charmin, you're talking about this sort of idea of, oh, we'll do, you know, the white moderate or, or the liberal approach of, oh, we'll support up to this point. And then when it becomes too much we're you know, whatever that line of too much is, that's the end of the support. You know, I, I really think about how there's, yeah, you already talked about how there's not like an examination of like, what does it look like, you know, to build solidarity when it becomes something that requires giving up something or giving up power, or having sort of the willingness to go to that next level. And, when I think about how that actually happens, there is an individual dimension to that. You know, that's not the whole explanation, but there's an individual dimension to that where you know having more individual kind of internal um, fortitude and commitment and integrity um, is not the full explanation, but there's something going on there. And and the nice thing about focusing on those internal components, not as a substitute to collective, but is is we do have quite a bit of you know control or say or navigate something we can do there, like your own individual existential framework is sort of something you have quite a bit that you can influence on. Again, not the full we're still in a context and and we don't lose sight of that, but there's something there. And so what I'm getting at when I'm trying to bridge this sort of individual to collective and you know talk about this sort of um the transactional piece is um I, I do think there's some something to be said about about not not foregoing that kind of individual work and that individual kind of necessity to to build courage, to build integrity, and to to not just approach it as something that only happens on the collective level. And unfortunately, like there's a whole bunch of views and theories that offer a very lousy. Um, set of ideas of how to explore and navigate that and i think that the problem with you know having insufficient kind of ways to think about that is you just give people bad tools and and it won't help it won't help it, it will it'll lead more it'll it'll if you just leave it to a market transactional approach in, as a way to to deal with what you do on an individual level then you you lay the groundwork for the the moderate approach because um you know where does your self interest in the immediate end and that's going to come up against when there's greater sacrifice and you end up you know you no longer can frame it as a sort of gain for yourself or something like that. you have to lose too much and, and that's way different than a framework of, of really having a principled integrity based you know understanding that sacrifice is sometimes not just good but necessary and and that's part of the whole thing. So I, I don't have it all figured out. I do know that it's it's very um it's very it's work to to really keep um to be principled in what you do because our society is not set up to 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 prioritize what is right. <laughs> it's prioritized for profit and to maintain certain power structures that are really damaging. So yeah, I I feel like again I'm not really coming to a big conclusion here, but I just do notice that I think with the transactional kind of framework and the markety kind of framework to 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 groups working across different oppressions, um, it does in a wrong way bridge the kind of individual to the collective, and and if we can expand our idea of what solidarity even could be and and can think about it in a way that isn't really offered by that view, I think you can work backwards and have a different view as well of what individuals can do. And that doesn't have to just collapse into a tit for tat exchange framework. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think um, one thing I just want to conclude on is that there is, um, there's a bit of a vacuum with, um, you know, how people can um, get involved. I mean, um, some groups can be, and like are closed and you know are hard to like you know get involved in and sometimes people just you know I can only sign a petition I can only donate you know um and I think um as you know activists we do need to create or revolutionaries we need to create different openings for people that isn't just like oh you want to get involved okay let's do this like blockade or <laughs> let's like confront the police it's like the first activity that someone does and um and that is a struggle, right? Like to create different openings for people based on their comfort, as a way for them to like get experience and more confident. Um, I mean, I struggle with that a lot, you know, um, because I'm always trying to like think strategically about like big actions or something that's like really unique. And um, I have to remember that, like, for especially because people leave or we, we we need people coming in and uh, and they'll, they'll be a different place and so I think definitely creating different opportunities of of exposure and entrance is really important for revolutionaries to think about um but also I think we also need to like really refuse that transactional you know kind of uh, um, relationship amongst ourselves and I know David wrote an excellent article about you know when revolutionaries get paid and um and and, and sort of more the more radical feminist, um, realm there's this like fuck you pay me um attitude which i agree like for a lot of things like when universities a lot of universities want things for, for free from activists in the movement i'm like no you should be paying for that but i think that has also really in in seeped into our movements too right where um where i think we have to openly be against that like i will do workshops for free i will do work for free uh not because it's transactional but because i'm like a, i'm i'm committed to. Um, to this revolutionary cause and it's not going to be done by paid work. You know, I'm not opposed to some people getting paid if they're going to be like doing more work and where we need it, but definitely social change and the revolution won't be happening by paid organizers or paid union organizers at all. Like, um, but so we, I, I've been more open about it. You know, I've been, um, like I'm a bookkeeper and when activists or like um, indigenous groups ask me for, help, I'll do sliding scale. And I, you know, and I will make that clear to my politics because I work for a union, so I'm fine. But I don't think a lot of people do that. And um, I think it's something, I think we've kind of, like, stopped talking about the wage relationship or, you know, (laughs) I don't know, more basic tenant, like basic Marxist tenants. I think we've kind of, like, ignored that now. Um, But I think we should bring it back and really, really, like, really remove it. Remove that Transactional attitude from our practice because it is really limiting us. You know, it's why um, rather than seeing thousands of people in the street, we just have thousands of people donating to orgs like BLM, which is great. You know, now they can do more organizing. But I would rather have those people be trained and show up when we need them. You know, so yeah. But um, but definitely, I think I think like this idea of wage being paid and transaction is very much seeped into our movements and it is really limiting, you know? So now people feel that the only way they, they can get anything done is by paying someone. And it's just untenable.
0: So in a very different uh, direction now, I guess, to what we've just been talking about, I, I want to just note that something that I've seen, I think as a significant political change in recent years has been the spread in anti-racist milieu of ideas that are influenced in one way or another by the academic school of thought that gets known as Afro-pessimism. And uh, according to Afro-pessimism, modern society is really founded on violence against black people. And I'm gonna quote from another article in the journal Spectre, um, Nick Mitchell, um, they're writing and you know, he says, in terms of trying to explain Afro-pessimism to readers, talks about how um, for Afro-pessimism, what it means to be human is constituted by, dependent on and committed to anti-black violence. And in the U- writing in the UK, uh, Annie Olaloku Ol- Tariba uh, notes two political themes that she thinks reflect the influence of Afro pessimism. One is the idea of anti Blackness, uh, the idea that it's an exceptional form of oppression that's distinguished from what other non white people experience. And then another is the charge that gets raised against people who would be called non Black people of color. Um, when they attempt to draw comparisons between Black struggles and their own, and the allegation that that's engaging in anti-Blackness when people try to draw that comparison. So I'm interested in what you, um, what your take is on these kinds of ideas.
1: Okay, so um, before I answer that, I want to just point out let everybody know that David sent us the questions in advance. And so I mentioned Spectre and then the next question David brings up Spectre. I feel like I'm stealing the careful laid out system here. So um, I just think that's funny, but I also want to admit that. Um, for Afro-pessimism, um, I'm not an expert on it. I reflected on this question and I there's a few things I'll say. One, it's got a cool name. That's, I just... I think the name is is really incredible Um, but I want to just mention what I think some things that it gets right that are worth um, not losing in the criticism and one of those things is uh, I remember someone once said this to me when I was learning about some anti-racist theory in a much younger place in my life Uh, the question of it's not is it racist? It's the question of how is this racist? Which was really, really uh, eye-opening to me to think about things in a way that I hadn't thought about before. I don't believe that anymore. You can't just um, find the shadow of racism in every single thing. At the same time, um, racism extends to everything. So figuring out the balance, like when you're socialized to to really uh, Turn away from acknowledging or thinking about racism and then having a wedge in that breaks open that uh, that matches some experiences you've had and also gives you a theoretical framework is really helpful. Now that's not what Afro-pessimism is, but that sort of that sort of giving legitimacy to the psychic experience of of blackness and the racism one experiences, I think is is a really good thing to. Pull out of that and to keep with that, it's, it's, it extends a sensitivity to how deep um, anti-black racism is, how pervasive it is, and I think that that is very much based on the creation of blackness as a as a category. It is very much um, based on the particular material history of um, North America and the Western world and the, the capitalist world. I think those things are are very very um important to note and I want to just harp on this a bit more by saying that I just think one of the things about racism in particular is that it is really um it is really uh there's a problem with mystifying it but it's uh it's really one of those things that can be so different than someone's experience who doesn't have it like so different like at every at every point where you might try to uh say ah, i get it i relate it you could be getting it wrong it's like it's 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 a complex thing and i think um i'm always open to more um parallels or sorry more connections and more um bringing that forward the idea that it's it's that big and that deep but i do think that um you know there there are problems with with some of how i understand afro-pessimism to be and one of those ones that was mentioned that already uh, the the person uh was it uh let's see, Nick Mitchell already raised in the article is just that when you have a theory that is that is sort of disconnected from social struggle and it's um, it sort of exists as a, as a theory and then it's used to describe things, but it's not actually um, connected to social struggle. It's not actually connected to and refined through social struggle. It's going to have distortions. And I, I, think, I think it's a fine hypothesis, but you've got to go ahead and see, like, does this actually match up? you can come up with theories about anything. So does this, this the ideas of Afro-pessimism and the idea that um, uh, essentially that like, there's no um, possibility of being in this society as a non-Black person that is, besides being categorically against, uh, that is just part of the problem against Blackness is, um, okay, that's that's a claim, all right. Let's, does that does that actually play out? And how do how do you what are the answers when you think about people who are in the fringes, who are in the mixtures, who are in betweens? And I also wonder about how blackness beyond North America gets theorized within Afro pessimism. So, but I I'm I'm a first generation African immigrant that came as a baby, so um, I don't have the same background as a person who. Uh, who's black and who's been uh, on Turtle Island for for many more generations directly through the slave trade? So I feel like I should mention that because you know people should be free to criticize what I'm saying too.
2: Yeah, I um I um did some reading about Afrofeminism as in a reading group on Fanon, and um, so Afrofeminism is uh, um um I don't know if it's, if it's influenced from directly, but um, it's part of the conversation um when um you know and Fanon who really talks about like yeah the psychology and um the consciousness of racism and um you know um, what is it to be human um it it is a you know a huge thread to to that theory um and I'm in a current reading class um, with Theodore Allen's book on invention of the white race and a lot of these questions about afro is coming up because of his kind of uh, politics or ideas about how race and whiteness are constructed and um, you know while there are mechanisms for some people who weren't white to become white would it ever be a possibility for for black people you know and um, and what does that mean for categories of of race if like race is totally meaningless and you know whiteness can invite many people who aren't white Um, but um, you know the main uh, race has been left out from that has like has been black people um, and it's a huge debate in the reading group and I really appreciate it and recommend people reading that book as well um, it's really challenging and it really challenges how you've been um, thinking about racism especially in liberal capitalism but um, to answer some of the questions because it does come up right um, there's this kind of um, narrative around like stay, like stay in your lane. You can't, you know, even with this recent stuff with the, with the Oscars and Will Smith, um, a lot of things on Twitter being like, if you're not black, you can't comment on what happened between these two celebrities. And, um, you know, a lot of like, um, um, you know, yeah, like comments like that or, or, or politics like that. And, um, I will say that like, and I'm speaking just from my background. Um, South Asian, Pakistani, and Muslim. And so um, I grew up, you know, like with, you know, and I've left that religion, but, um, but, um, but the role of black Muslims have always been elevated, you know, in my life. Um, and um, when I went to mosque, um, people often talked about how black Muslims um, have experienced a lot of racism in the Muslim community. And um, that was against God. And I, if I can take any appreciation from that time, it is that, um, you know, people like love Malcolm X and his return to, um, you know, Sunni, um, uh, Islam and, um, and so it was kind of like. I learned from a very young age, the experiences of black Muslims were very different from other people around the world, that they were not seen as real Muslims, that um, often um, black Muslims are like treated badly as servants in like Saudi Arabia towards, you know, Arabs. And I began to articulate my understanding of racism around like how close you are to whiteness, you know? So yeah, of course, for um, Irish people or Scottish people or, you know, um, Italians, the closer you're to whiteness, the more you can be included in the club you know, later on, uh, depending on how productive you are in capitalism. Um, And then I think for other, you know, immigrants in Canada, you know, like the lighter you are, I think does kind of have a direct correlation with how easily you can um get access to the privileges of whiteness doesn't mean maybe full uh entry into the club um but it is a way again to uh, like my example before you compare yourself to other people well at least i'm not like that community or indigenous community and for me that's around the closest to whiteness um i don't think it's simple like a direct correlation but i do think it is part of the narrative that's fed into us about you know, the op- how the operationalization of, of racism and anti blackness um, in Canada, for sure. Um, yeah, and I have definitely seen um, the struggles of like non black people of color compare themselves to black people. And I am, um, I reject that. I mean, we, I don't, um, I know that people's like, well, you know, like atrocity happened to other people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we can't minimize um, the incredible. Um, disruption of the African slave trade uh, that we're still living with right now, like in terms of our world, world economy, the formation of the colonies, the formation of Canada, you know, everything um, is that was so central to it. And it's not to like say that no other forms of oppression have happened, but it is formative to um, where we are right now. Um, and I'd also say the same though, as that because a lot of people of color and I did this as well compare um, you know, especially in the colonial state, compare the struggles between indigenous people. And I say that we would have to reject that, that we really need to understand the specific forms of relationships that have um, created for us in order. And it's not to, it's not to like preserve these categories. Um, for me, like my end goal is like that, like my idea of no racism is what Fanon's um ideal was right that these categories become meaningless to us you know and that maybe they operate in like you know minimal ways um but in terms of the structural ways those are gone you know um and um yeah like he you know he didn't talk about some sort of like black nationalism to you know um um, as a specific space but as a way to Uh, destroy racism, to destroy those racial categories. And that's my goal. And so for me to destroy racial categories, we have to talk about the specific histories, um, especially of the um, African slave trade and also of settler colonialism here in Canada. Um, It's just necessary. And I think the kind of um, strive or the goal to like, you know, um, compare is more of the multiculturalism, as, 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 a, as, a, as a symptom of multiculturalism, that we all have equal oppressions, so we can all like deal with it, you know, equally. And uh, and I and so I reject that. Um, but you know, um, just like Teddy, I'm not like I haven't said too much about Afro pessimism, but I have seen um, like uh, a way to sharpen analysis in some ways. But I also have found um, it kind of leading me into like maybe more like postmodernism like where there is no um, strategy of liberation um, that it is like, yeah, that there is no, there is no way um, for there to be um, solid for there to be solidarity because anti-blackness just exists, you know, and that's, um, uh, I agree that anti-blackness may always exist, but I just, I can't swallow that there, then there is no, way for there to be solidarity you know or a way for us to like dismantle capitalism and white supremacy um that is that is a hard thing for me to accept and yeah so that's where i'm kind of like that's where i have like a lot of questions about you know how it can inform our practice of liberation and not just have us be like nope there's just like nothing we can do you know so
0: yeah okay then to move towards um, wrapping up, I guess I wanted to sort the question about whether you think there are particular kinds of activity that are worth prioritizing today in this, you know, so-called Canada um, for advancing anti-racism, based on your assessment of the this political conjuncture that we're in. Um.
2: Yeah. I. I, I this is the question that I was stuck on when I got your questions in advance, <laughs> David, because. Um, I find like the general socialist anti-racist movement to be quite weak um, right now. Maybe I mean socialism generally is quite weak right now, but like I've been really feeling this with the trucker convoy. Like there was no anti-racist response or uprising or, or it was really small, you know? Um, I was kind of like, I, I participated in some rallies in Toronto and I thought for sure there'd be like thousands and thousands of people just like totally outraged you know about um this like really reactionary politics now just like taking over you know the streets of ottawa and just like you know gaining so much media coverage and um i'm like okay so like what does this mean for you know the anti-racist socialist left you know that um we didn't respond was it were we unprepared did we think it would just go away in a few days but even so like i don't know why we weren't there right away you know to like provide um, to provide an anti-racist working-class analysis to people, and instead, kind of let those truckers run wild and just get all the support, and like, and they took up the mantle of working-class politics during that time. You know, so I've been I've been feeling a bit down about that, and like I know there's going to be a few. There's like actually a meeting today happening in Montreal talking about uh, there's a national meeting of some kind, and I'm involved in a an event with Midnight Sun and others on like the trucker convoy and how we can understand it. Um, it's just like, I don't know, it feels absent. I don't know how you you two feel. Um, So, you know, like, it's hard for me to understand, like, what activity to prioritize when things seem so weak, you know? I would say, like, um, we definitely need to um, work on grounding our analysis and anti-racism and and socialism and, like, you know, just even amongst ourselves internally, understanding what that means, especially in context of um, what happened last month and um and it seems to be like it's gone away but i'm sure they're growing somewhere <laughs> somewhere they're like meeting and i think we need to be more prepared and then um you know in terms of like um other activity to prioritize i just think we need to um be more public in our anti-racism so um if we're not um educating uh, people in our groups already then to be holding more events holding more protests and to uh, make more public our analysis, you know, that um, our politics um, is, a, is a framework of liberation for everyone. You know, it's not to divide anyone, it's not to say someone's better or not, um, but, you know, the real liberation comes with um, uh, democratic and socialist uh, way of working and, and living amongst each other. And that is um, one where people who, where people will work less. <laughs> it's, like this is this is what you'll get. You'll work less. You know you have to work more. You'll work less. And um, and I think like we just have to be more in the streets about that. Like I don't I don't want to funder rallies or anything, but um, it is the most public way. And if we if we are struggling together, we will build solidarity together. We'll if we have fights together for an action or for a campaign, that is what will fight racism for me. You know if I can be in the streets with like a white White comrade or you know um that is where um the theoretical becomes actual struggle so yeah but i've been i've been struggling with this because i've been so sad about the like and it's not I, i've been trying like i've been trying to have conversations with people you know and um i don't know people have there's a lot of fear about what happened with the trucker convoy and just like the kind of white supremacy they manifested there's also been a lot of dismissal about like, oh, well it was just like a fluke. It's not going to happen again. So I've been feeling, I've been really like, there was a big reckoning for me and just seeing the absence of that.
1: So, yeah. I think that this is something that from a Winnipeg context, like there were so many people who were at the black lives matter rally a few years ago. It was incredible. Um, And I know, I know for a fact that internally to, the organizing that happened there, I wasn't part of that organizing, so I don't want to make it sound like I was in that, but I, I know that there were these key debates and discussions that we were talking about through this entire episode about how to balance appealing to a lot of people, uh, how to make your demands and how to how to shape those, uh, how to think about higher tactics fit into that, um, who gets invited, what is the sort of like idea of what's liberation Um for the sort of organizing we're do- that, that they were doing. And I just think that it would have been incredible if, if some of that sort of energy and that sort of organizing um, was also pointed towards responding to the trucker convoy with an explicitly anti-racist um, angle. And what would it take for that sort of a thing to happen? I think it's very possible for that to happen. Like... Is just in the same way that the trucker convoy organizing um, has retreated to the invisibilities of the internet or wherever it is right now, it's still happening somewhere back there. There's a lot of background organizing around the Black Lives Matter rally in Winnipeg and that those those connections have not disappeared. Those connections are ongoing. That's still happening. I think if there isn't um, that sort of relationship between socialists in general and that kind of organizing, then... Um, there's, uh, there's less of an ability to contribute to those kinds of pivotal discussions and decisions when the time comes, which is not to say that socialists have all the answers and there's no socialists involved there. And so rein in on your white horse and save, or not at all, but socialists um, who, are, who are involved in, 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 in thinking about socialism and thinking about these questions have something to contribute to that But you can't without a relationship and so those relationships and and the other thing too is is as huge as that black lives matter rally in winnipeg was um it's uh, don't be overwhelmed by the size of that to think that there's no room to contribute by having some really good relationships organizing relationships credibility there don't think that oh no um five people who who are involved in the long haul kind of organizing wouldn't have made a difference very much could have made a difference it's not uh, there's an outsized uh, uh, outcome by um, having, having people with, with, with good ideas, connecting with other people and, and making things happen. It's, it's not like, um, I know that we're weak on the left and socialists and revolutionary socialists are weak, but uh, we're not so weak that we can be zero impactful. So there has to be sort of like a confidence that that could, could happen. But just to reiterate and connect to the point you've made a few times, and um, Charmaine, like the relationships are crucial. And so you don't know what kind of political and organizing relationship from today will be the one that is going to help in the future. So you just kind of got to always be doing that. Um, so there's that kind of idea. And I do think that would have, you know, the outcome and the way that the Shucker Convoy went down sort of reveals where we we're at, just as you mentioned. And also, I I hope reveals an opportunity um, when I connected to other amazing organizing that has happened in Winnipeg, in spite of our... Extreme need for even more. The other idea that I just want to add to this question of what should what's worth uh, prioritizing and and any kind of activities like just thinking about anti-racism and what we should do, what should we do? That question is just um, um, I just can't. It can't be stated enough. Don't leave this work to employers or liberals or capitalists to take the lead on anti-racism work. Uh, It's incredible how. how that is just sort of uh, it, frame, it already frames things in a in a position in a way that is not is not great, and it it just it, it takes a big task, and it, in my opinion, it makes it even more difficult. Um, there's a lot of anti oppression work that needs to to be done, and as I mentioned earlier, if it doesn't get edited out, uh, all all of it could be useful in a way. Like we do have to prioritize, but. We can't just, um, um, just because you're not necessarily organizing towards a specific rally or just because you're not organizing towards a specific um, uh, response to something in the, in the moment doesn't mean that that broader kind of educating, that broader kind of, uh, I'll just say in quotes, in general, anti-racism organizing uh, is, is not useful is not good. Is not going to be helpful. Is not strengthening. So I just think like we're all so taxed that um, it's difficult to do everything. It's impossible to do everything. Um, but we find ourselves in a situation where it's helpful for capitalism to to take on its own kind of superficial and liberal um, anti-racism education campaigns and strategies and we have to be attentive to how that's um an obstacle in certain ways and how that's we're not on the same team when that work is happening that way and it's not like it's doing some of the work we need to do it's not doing the work we need we will still need to do that work and unfortunately it might even make our work doubly difficult because in some ways, it can make the racism we have to respond to even more invisible or not on the radar, and, and then that's not helpful either. So, yeah.
2: Um, in terms of priorities, um, is I actually have um, found a lot of um, like around around the different prison abolition and you know defunding the police campaigns. Um, a lot of really rich. Conversation and debates about tactics and anti-racism, um, and and those those movements, I feel, have really elevated conversations about um, carceral state systems and anti-racism. And for our work known as legal, we wanted we want to include border services in that with CBSA. Like we, you know, we want to. They're violent institutions that. Um, you know, really focus on communities of color and, um, you know, make, make the, make, like, rip apart families, destroy people's lives. Um, and I, I have found, though, that, um, there hasn't really been much strong articulation from a socialist perspective around abolition. Um, and I think that's work that, um, socialists could also do is, like, really articulate why, you know, abolition is part of our socialist you know, um, politics, um, and and why we're also fighting for abolition of the police and, and prisons. Um, also, given like um, how past socialist and communist states have, or past and also current uh, uh, so-called uh, social states use those mechanisms as well. So um, yeah, so I I am excited about that. There's going to be an abolition convergence, and I really hope a lot of socialists uh, participate in that in those conversations.
0: Thank you so much for, I think we I think it was great. Lots of really great stuff in this episode, so really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.